of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Are the old world, picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences, with fewer people, and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Sebastian Junger grew up in Massachusetts and began his career as a freelance journalist. He's covered some of the most dangerous jobs and areas in the world, from the Afghanistan wars to Nigeria's blood oil to the hazards of commercial fishing. On this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, Sebastian recalls his extensive career in journalism, what it's like covering wars, and his new book, Freedom. Hey, Sebastian. Hey there. Nice to meet you. You too. You too. Thanks for having me on. Totally my pleasure. Where are you, uh, where are you as we speak? Uh, I'm in New York City. Nice. And have you been, has New York City been home base even as you've traveled the world or, or where have you typically lived? Yeah, I've been based out of here since 1996. Oh my goodness. And, and Manhattan always or other parts of yep. New York? Yep, Manhattan, Lower East Side. That's right. Okay. And, and how much has the Lower East Side changed since the uh, mid-90s? Probably... I mean, crime's gone down, there's been some gentrification, but it's still, you know, there's areas that are primarily Spanish-speaking. And uh, yeah, I mean, it definitely has its sort of indigenous feel for sure. Yeah, yeah. What made you you choose the Lower East Side? How did that happen? It just felt like um, one of the last sort of like, the last parts of New York that felt like it was still old New York. You know, everything else has changed. I don't know. It just felt interesting. My dad grew up in Spain. I wanted to live in a part of town that had different languages in it, different kinds of people. Like, uh, I don't know. It was the only place that made sense. Nice, nice, nice. That's a that that should we all should say that at some point. It's the only place that made sense. That sounds yeah, like yeah, that's right. You know what I mean? That's, uh, that's that, right. Yeah, that's uh, that that's now. Where did you grow up? Where you you didn't grow up in New York, did you? 
No, no, no. I grew up outside of Boston. Okay. Um, which, which thinks it's New York, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but now I don't hear any Boston accent. You, you're. Not, I'm, no. I'm not. I'm not hearing any uh, wicked smart or any of that. I can do it, but my dad grew up in Spain and France, and my dad, my mom grew up in Ohio, and um, and they, you know, whatever. I just didn't. They beat it out of me. No, not really. (laughs) Yeah, I just didn't end up with the accent. Wow, wow. And I saw that um, that you went to Wesleyan. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. You know, I I think Wesleyan may be the most interesting university in the last 30 years. I feel like from Lin-Manuel Miranda to um, Bose St. John, I feel like there's so many interesting people that have come out of Wesleyan, and I keep wanting to, like, study it. Like, what Wesleyan and Boston University are the two places I feel like in the last— sorry, Wesleyan, Boston University, and then Spelman Morehouse— I feel like in the last 30 years, those four uh-huh. places have like overproduced like outstandingly interesting people. Uh, was yeah. Wesleyan like that while you were there? Was it a, a, yeah. a particularly notable place in that way? I was there in the in the early 80s, and, and it was definitely a sort of liberal university. It wasn't sort of burdened by the sort of baggage that comes with an Ivy League school, but the education itself was on that level. Um, and... Uh, and it wasn't quite as funky as Oberlin. It was sort of, in, for me, a sort of sweet spot between Harvard, you know, Harvard and Oberlin or something. And so it produced some very, very independently thinking people. And had, they had amazing teachers. I mean, it was extraordinary education. And it seems like a lot of writers, I, sus- I feel like, as well. Was there something going on with the writing program there? Because I see, I see a lot of good writers come out of Wesleyan, and I see a lot of yeah. good writers come out of Yale, was there, was there something, and I've heard some of the Yale grads say that there were a couple of particularly good professors that really nurtured that. Was it similar at Wesleyan? Yeah, Annie Dillard was a, a, an amazing writer, and I don't think she's w- with us any longer, but an amazing writer, and she was a, in the English department at Wesleyan. And I never took an English course, unfortunately. My girlfriend in college was an English major, and I, and, and, uh, but I never took an English course or a journalism course. I learned all of that afterwards, but... Yeah, Andy Dillard, I think, was responsible for the Wesleyan writing program. And then the film program at Wesleyan was also quite well known, has produced a lot of, um, you know, really big time, big time names. Yeah. And so how did you end up, you said you weren't studying, you were an English major in college. How does, uh, how does young Sebastian end up uh, uh, putting pen to paper and uh, making that not just his profession, but his, uh, you know, uh, you know, making a huge success of it? Yeah, well, I, you know, I studied uh, anthropology cultural anthropology, and I wrote a thesis. I was a, I was a fairly good uh, distance runner in high school and college. I ran a, a 412-mile, ran some other good times, marathon, sponsored by a shoe company after college. So I was, you know, I wasn't national class, but I was pretty good. And uh, I did a thesis for an anthropology uh, major on uh, Navajo long-distance runners. I lived on the reservation for a summer and trained with their best guys, and writing the thesis was the most exciting thing I did in four years in college. I just loved it. And so I got out of college. I did construction for a while. Uh, I don't know, whatever. I wasn't very focused. But I thought, you know, maybe I'll be a journalist. Like, that, that's probably pretty close to what I did with researching and writing this thesis. And, um, and then by very, very meandering, haphazard route, I eventually uh, managed to start publishing things. And then I, in the early 90s, I went off to Bosnia. There was a civil war in Bosnia. I was in Sarajevo uh, during the siege of Sarajevo. My father grew up in Spain and was, 
his family fled the fascists in Spain in 1936, and then uh, they left France after the Germans came in. So, you know, war had affected my family a lot. And, I, you know, frankly, I was sort of curious about war, and off I went. Interesting. And you were curious about war in what way? You were curious about war as in um, it had been romanticized and you, um, like a lot of young men, you wanted to go see that. You were curious about war in that you were afraid of it. You, wh- what about Everything. war was drawing you in? I mean, it had, it had affected, you know, war had affected my family a lot. And, you know, my grandmother grew up during World War I. Uh, she was from Austria. And so war had been part of the father, my father's side of the family for, you know, two generations. And um, I also grew up in a very, um, I grew up in a very liberal environment where I believe that human rights are paramount and human suffering is an outrage that must be reported on and acknowledged and, and, and prevented if possible. Um, and I also, you know, I grew up in a pretty affluent situation where uh, as a young man, I felt like I had never been tested. Uh, I'd never done anything where I you know, didn't, wasn't sure if the outcome was going to be okay, right? That I was going to survive. And um, I just had a sort of young instinct, young man's instinct, to find a situation to test myself in. I thought if I went to war, not only could I be part of this sort of amazing apparatus which reports on the events of the world and brings to light these horrible tragedies, but on a personal level, I could sort of, I would sort of test myself and find out what I was truly made of. Um, that's sort of true and not true at the same time. You know, eventually I went, I discovered wars for, you know, a decade and a half. And eventually at the end of that, I, I did find out what I wanted to find out about myself. And, uh, and I found out about war, what I wanted to find out about war. And my best friend got killed and I stopped, stopped reporting war. Well, what did you end up finding out about yourself? Uh, Almost no one's brave when they're getting shelled, <laughs> and everybody gets scared. And um, that I had within my abilities, I had the ability to function even in situations that were unbelievably bad. Like I kind of passed the test, but I was also amazed. And even though I continued functioning, I was amazed at how scared I would get. Um, it, was, it was sort of a strange thing. Like I passed the test, but I was also psychologically way more vulnerable than I realized. I think most people are. And, you know, I had tra- traumatic effects from some of this stuff that, that lasted quite a long time. And, I, you know, probably uh, endure today in me. Did you, um, you know, in most of these cases or in all of these cases, you were there as a journalist. Did you ever, were you ever there as a soldier at any point? No, no, no. I was always a journalist. And most of the wars I covered was not with American soldiers. I mean, when I started covering American soldiers is basically when I stopped being scared because although you can certainly get killed out there and and, uh, I almost was a couple of times, but the American soldiers are very much in control of the process. What feels really scary is a situation that's out of control. Um, the, The civil war in Sierra Leone and Liberia at Sarajevo, uh, in Afghanistan, I was in Afghanistan in the mid-90s when the Taliban were take, taking over. Uh, in 2000, I spent a couple of months with uh, Ahmad Shah Massoud and his forces as they fought the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in the north and Badakhshan. And those situations were, I mean, you know, one, one thing that happened to me, we, we, we were out on a front line that Massoud's forces had just taken from the Taliban. And, the, you know, the heavy weapons were still pointed the wrong way. And uh, 
right when we got there, we had a couple of horses to carry our gear. We were, we were shooting, you know, we were shooting a film and uh, uh, the Taliban counterattacked and the counterattack started with an artillery bombardment and they sort of saturated the hilltop with Katusha rockets for 45 minutes. And, you know, you could hear them come in. There's this awful shrieking whistle. And, uh, and you know, it might, you know, that might be the last thing you ever hear. You know, if it lands on top of you, you're dead and you'll never even know that you died. Right. I mean, it was a really kind of messes with your mind. And, um, you know, we took so much fire that, that one of the horses was killed. You know, they couldn't get down. We were down on the ground. The horses couldn't get down. And we had to saddle the, the other horse while we were getting shelled and get our gear on top of it. And it was plunging and, you know, like, it was horrible, right? And so afterwards, I got back to New York and I started having panic attacks in the subway, in the New York City subway. And it never occurred to me it had to do with combat because there was no subways in Afghanistan, right? This is, here I am in the subway and I, and I realized, oh, I finally, finally put the two together. Like, this is P what people are now talking about, PTSD. Right. And this was early on. This was 2000. So it was before 9-11. People weren't using that term yet. I finally realized, oh, that was the combat. You're panicking in the subway because there's so many people. It's so loud that you don't feel in control, just like you weren't in control on that hilltop. And it would trigger a total panic attack. It was really, really fascinating. It took a long time for that to go away. That's a really uh, powerful phrase that you mentioned, that the panic may come from not being in control. And you think about all the scenarios in which that's true, you think about um, a spouse, most often a woman, in a bad relationship, in an abusive relationship. Uh, you know, you think about kids who are hungry um, or who are in unsafe yeah. places and what that feels like not to feel like you've got uh, some control over it and the things that we may do to try and um, uh, uh, deal with that. Um, Sebastian, what would have happened if... Do, do you know what would have happened if instead of being there as a journalist for a decade and a half, you'd been there as a soldier? Do you, do you know whether or not you could have done that or what would have happened to you if you had been a soldier instead of a journalist? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure. Had I, I mean, you know, I'm, I was older than the, those guys. I was, you know, almost 40 when 9-11 happened. And uh, had it happened when I was 20, I think, you know, my, I think I might have joined. I don't know. My, you know, my father... My father was a huge pacifist, but he was from Europe. His father was Jewish. And he made it clear to me that the, the, honorable, the honorable philosophy is pacifism. But that doesn't mean that force of arms are never needed. And he said, America saved the world from fascism during World War II. It did it for its own reasons, you know, whatever. But at the end of the day, they sent hundreds of thousands of men into into gunfire in Europe to save the world from fascism and thousands and thousands of American graves are in the soil in his home country of France. And he said, you know, when you get your, your, your um, selective service card in the mail, you're going to sign that. You know, he was totally against Vietnam and the draft. But he said, you're going to sign that because the country might need you. It might need you for a just war. And he was like, I'm a pacifist, but that doesn't mean that there aren't wars that need to be fought. And um, so I, I think had the had I been, had my country needed me, had I been of the right age, I think I would have made a good soldier. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I think yeah, that would have worked. Um, I, uh, I soldiers have this extra burden is that they kill people, and they can believe that they're killing people for uh, a necessary reason. Often that's true. But there is a moral residue of killing people for any reason that many soldiers find themselves 
burdened by throughout their lives. And that's different from journalists. You know, journalists, our burden is that we feel like voyeurs. We feel, as a friend of mine, a war reporter friend of mine said, Scott Anderson, he said, uh, he said, I should be punished for the things I've seen overseas. That's what it feels like. You feel like you deserve punishment just for having witnessed these awful things. You're a voyeur, you know? It's what it feels like on your worst days. Soldiers, soldiers can feel like they're killers. You know, that's a whole other burden. And I don't, you know, like that's a, that's a lifetime of working through, I think, if you're a sensitive person. You, have you ever spent any time with John Kerry, uh, the former uh, senator, uh, former secretary of state? Uh, I shook his hand and had a half hour conversation once a few years ago, yeah. I, I always wondered that as I watched him in the election in 2004. I wondered if he, as he was swift boated, I wondered if his failure to respond was that there still was regret from the people he had killed yep. in Vietnam and that that stopped him from being uh, more forceful in his response. That's a really interesting idea. I don't know. It would be interesting to ask him that. Um, I know that many people who've been exposed to war just simply do not want to talk about it and certainly don't want to have to defend things that they that they did in a situation that you know, all of Kerry's accusers did not have to go through. I mean, it's amazing that he was accused by an entire administration of, you know, quote, draft dodgers, or or at least people that didn't serve. And um, they were accusing him of being a coward. I mean, I I mean, that was, you know, in some ways, that was the beginning of insanity politics, of, you know, reality not really mattering much, and just forcing through a point of view that doesn't necessarily make sense. and that that and um, I think it was Donald Rumsfeld saying someone asked Rumsfeld, well, about Iraq that, you know, you say the war is getting better, but American casualties are going up. How do you reconcile that with you saying the war is winding down? And he said he said, well, you're hearing that from journalists and they're stuck in the reality based world. And that was the first time that I that in my memory that a politician suggested that there was a parallel reality and that if you were, and that the faithful, the politically faithful should follow that parallel reality and not the one that's actually happening around us. A, a dismal moment. Uh, and I, I met Rumsfeld and I had a very nice talk with him. I thought he was a very nice guy, but that was a pretty dismal moment for a democracy. You know what? That is very interesting. We forget about Don Rumsfeld, but um, he was an, an early... Um it, it, he was he was distinctive uh, is the word I guess I'm going to use for the moment uh, in his use of words and in his yeah. discussion of reality and facts and the rest long before the Trump administration uh, Rumsfeld uh, was you know was Rumsfeldian um, uh, that's interesting I hadn't I hadn't I'd forgotten about him uh, in yeah. that in that way yeah. yeah. Yeah, these are all brilliant guys, right? These are very, very smart people. And, but it reminded me of what Saddam Hussein said, who I'm sure was also smart in his own right. As Baghdad was getting run, he went on, overrun, he ran on the radio and said that the gunfire, the, he told the people of Baghdad that the sound of the gunfire they could hear was the sound of American soldiers committing suicide, right? So it's not that different from saying, yeah, the insurgency's in, you know, in its death throes. That's why, you know, you know, and you're just listening to the reality-based Journalists, like it's not that different from what Hussein said, um, and that's it's not that different from a lot of stuff that came out of Kellyanne Conway and out of uh, Donald Trump himself. I mean, you know, if if reality is inconvenient to your politics and you just reject it, eventually reality will catch up, right? I mean, of course, 
like eventually reality will have the final, final say. Uh, but you can, you can get through an election, uh, an election or two by, by proposing otherwise. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees, every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Sebastian, if you were, um, and I'm sure you probably have done this a bunch, something tells me you've, you've I know you've, you've started nonprofits and other things, so something tells me you've been generous with your time, and I bet you you spent a lot of time with young people. If you were going back and sitting with a room full of young people, and it really was a quiet, um, kind of just very open opportunity to share what you've learned. What would be the three or four things that this life has taught you that you would want to go back and tell? And I don't necessarily mean in a trite way, but I meant, 
if these were really your kids or your nieces or nephews or your younger self, and you were really trying to say, here are the three or four things that are going to end up surprising you or going to end up being valuable or no one else is going to tell you or I didn't fully click with it until I was 35 or 50 or whatever, what would be at the top of that list for you? What would be the three or four things from whatever space they come from? Yeah. I would say that if you're not failing fairly regularly, you're not um, you're not reaching far enough, right? I mean, if you are constructing a life where you you are not uh, um, where you're not failing at least once in a while, you're really playing it safe. And if you play it safe, you'll have a safe, predictable life. And so, failure is not a dishonor; it's not a disgrace. It means that you that you're not up you're not quite up to the things you're trying to do yet, right? It's a good sign to fail. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of very well-educated affluent people who depend on a spotless resume and a completely, like, stunning list of achievements before they're 24 or whatever, and there's not a failure in sight. That's not really living life to the fullest. You got to fail. You got you to gotta hit the dirt once in a while, right? And then another thing I would say is, um, above all things, human dignity is paramount. I mean, in your decisions about your own life and about treating other people and what to spend your money and your time on and how you vote and every single thing, human dignity. And we all know it when we, when we see it and we all know it when we watch it be um, injured. Human dignity really is the final sort of guiding principle about how to act. Um, you don't have to be religious. I'm an atheist. It has, has nothing to do with religion. It has nothing to do with anything except your, your central concern for the state of the human race and the people around you. And if you can follow that, um, you'll be guided through all kinds of complicated situations that don't look like there's an obvious, an obvious good choice, an obvious good answer. What would you say to younger Sebastian about love? What have you learned about love in this life? I think when people are young, they're trying to form themselves. And love is very compelling. But I'm not sure you can easily form yourself and forge um, an enduring relationship with someone else simultaneously. I think a certain amount of sort of spade work has to be done, done, sort of digging you know, you know, do the hard work of digging into yourself, into life. Um, and that might mean traveling. It might be, mean doing a really hard job. It might mean going to grad school. I mean, whatever it means, like you need to do a certain amount of that. And then in the end, love is the only thing that anything's about. I mean, that, like that, you know, not in your 20s, not in your 30s, but as you go through your life, like at the end of the day, love is the point. And everything else, the ambitions and the, the awards and the fancy parties or the, you know, the trips to, to Bali, I don't know, whatever, all that stuff. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter that much. I almost, uh, I been very, very close to dying last summer. I, I had a, a, an, an abdominal aneurysm that was undiagnosed and asymptomatic. And one day out of the blue with no warning, it ruptured. And I lost 90% of my blood with absolutely no warning at all. Like, right, like, you could, you know, right like I'm talking like this to you, all of a sudden, the sort of weird pain in my stomach. And within a few minutes, I couldn't stand up. Within 10 minutes, I was going blind. And within an hour, I was uh, basically 
I should have been dead. I wasn't, but I should have been dead. And uh, I lost 90% of my blood. And when I came back from that, I mean, the doctors were shocked that I survived. I mean, uh, like, it's hard to even talk about. But um, when I came back from that, I have two little girls, a four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old, and a wonderful wife who I love. I love all of them more than, not only more than anything else, I love all of them more than I could imagine it possible to love other people. You know what I mean? Like, it, it redefined love for me, actually. And I came out of that. The nurse in the ICU told me what had happened. He's like, sir, you almost died yesterday. Like, you're very lucky. I was shocked. I just lay there thinking not about that I was scared of dying. I thought about what it would do to them, my family, had I died. And that's what was tormenting. And that's, that's what love is. And when the nurse came back, amazing woman, came back and said, how are you doing, Mr. Younger? I said, well, I'm throwing up blood and I don't feel so good. But really, um, I'm very troubled by what you told me. It's really kind of tormenting me. I almost died in my driveway in front of my family terrifying and she said try this don't think about that as a scary thing think about it as a sacred thing and she walked out of the room and I spent the next five days in the ICU thinking about what she said and it was sacred because it made me understand finally the the ultimate most important terms of the lives that were given for a while uh, which is that you're you're there for your loved ones that's the point of all of it if you're fortunate and if you're blessed, I mean, part of what I hear uh, so beautifully in that, Sebastian, is that there are people who would miss you. Do you know what I mean? There are people who do love you. And I I think about so many people who don't uh, have that or, or at least don't have it as richly as I do or you do or maybe lots of the people we know and what happens to you when you don't have that. And so um, I'm... Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative of, of, of what you're sharing. Um, Sebastian, you still find yourself motivated. You, you've had so much success for so long. Um, you know, I love the perfect storm by the way, uh, uh, and, and appreciate, uh, that, that good and great work. Um, and, and, and all that has come, uh, after that as well. And I know much came before it too, but, but, but are you still motivated? Do you find yourself genuinely motivated, uh, at this point or where are you? in your, you know, in your arc? Uh, much less so. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an older father. I'm 59. My oldest child's four. Um, I'm most, I mean, honestly, the thing that intrigues me most is parenthood. I, I absolutely adore it. I, I might not have at 20, you know, 24, if I'd had children 30 years ago, maybe not, but for sure now. Uh, but I'm also fascinated by ideas. I love ideas, right? So the, the sort of like organizing principle of the books that I've written, they're all very, very different kinds of book. My last book is about freedom and the organizing ideas in that book, you know, I was totally fascinated by, you know, my father was a physicist. He's a very smart guy. And, uh, and he lived in the world of ideas. They were, ideas were kind of gods to him. Like he just like, I don't know, they, they, that's what the universe was for him. And so I have a bit of that. And so once I'm on an idea and writing well about it, like what, you know, what freedom means, for example, it's such a crazy, elusive, weird, overused, underappreciated word. But when I really tapped into a vein of thought and started writing about it in, a, in an original and insight, insightful way, you know, for me, it's like a drug, you know, so I'm, like, I'm not motivated by my career. Uh, I'm not ambitious in that sense, but I'm enormously motivated by ideas. I'm in love with ideas. What did you learn uh, writing freedom? What did you learn writing this new book? Well, 
I wrote it partly because I feel like it's a it's a word that's dragooned into all kinds of nefarious purposes. You know, anytime some political group wants to sort of justify acting immorally or unethically or violently, um, they start throwing around the word freedom. And, uh, and they do that because it's an enduring human value. It's one of the few things people will die for. Uh, and as a result, it's one of the few things that is sort of an unimpeachable moral justification for almost anything. You know, I needed my freedom. And so no, and after that, no one, no one questions it. And um, so, you know, I think what I learned is that, you know, I studied anthropology and I, I learned that humans do not survive by them. They do not survive by themselves. Uh, they survive in groups where, you know, we're social primates. The natural world is very dangerous and we survive in groups. And the groups, the group that we're in gives us freedom from oppression by another group, right? The, I mean, the main threat to our, or to our welfare in our history, in, in our prehistory, has been other predatory human groups that would kill us or enslave us. And so the, the group you're part of is sacred, right? Because it's preserving your collective dignity in the world, your freedom, and the welfare of your children. It's sacred, right? And, but the problem is that those groups can become dominated by an abusive, powerful leader. And then you are subject to a tyranny from within your group, not from the outside, but from within. And the entire endeavor of, of human existence is to protect yourselves from an outside threat, but maintain a free and fair society within the society. And power is abused so readily, so easily that you know, particularly in modern, you know, in the modern state, um, you know, starting with agriculture about 10,000 years ago, uh, there was a, as, at least as much risk of being abused by your leader uh, as being abused by an enemy. When you think about the most free people, uh, Sebastian, you have personally come across, and I'm, I'm purposely allowing the definition to be whatever you want it to be, who've been the most free people you've come across in your life? Well, here, okay, well, here's, here's where it gets tricky. There's a lot of ways of defining freedom. I spoke with one man who did uh, several decades in prison for, you know, committing a, admitting to committing an awful crime. And, uh, you know, he was from a background that was all the predictors of, of violence and incarceration. And, um, you know, he educated himself in prison. He was a, a brilliant, brilliant man. Uh, he found religion. And, and he got out on good behavior, and I asked him. I was able to interview this extraordinary person, and I asked him, is it possible to be more free in prison than outside of prison? And he said, oh, no, of course it is. He said, you, you can't be a drug addict in prison. Uh, you can't even be distracted. He said, on the outside world, you know, everyone's on their, on their smartphones and uh, distracted by all kinds of things. If you're in prison, he said, that's a, that's a, that's a, form, of, um, that's a form of tyranny. It's a form of oppression, really. And if, if, you're in, if you're in prison, uh, you have a lot of time. That's the one thing you have a lot of. And eventually, you will have an honest conversation with yourself about who you really are. And when you finally do that, you're a free person. I'm not going to argue with that, right? He, they, he, he, he earned that viewpoint. I'm not going to say, that's crazy, man. Prison's, <laughs> prison's prison. What are you talking about? So now you look at a sort of raw, sort of physical level, I looked at the American Southwest uh, in, you know, hundreds of years ago. 
there were two kinds of societies when the Spanish came in in the late 1500s. There, were the Pueblo, there was the Pueblo society of these very affluent agriculturalists, uh, like the Zuni, um, that, um, that, you know, they planted, they irrigated, they lived in these towns, they're quite affluent, and they were, they were defeated by the Spanish immediately, right? The Apache were very poor, materially poor, but very mobile, and they remained autonomous for the next 300 plus years. Uh, first the Spanish and then the Americans could not confine them, could not capture them. They remained autonomous until 1886. I mean, that's almost within my grandmother's lifetime. Uh, so, you know, my book is divided into three sections, run, fight, and think. Uh, th those are the three ways that human beings for thousands of years have maintained their autonomy. Uh, and, and, and the Apache or an excellent example of using mobility to just stay out of reach of of, of someone who would control you. And I, you know, I, I did this crazy walk along the railroad lines. Um, part, part of my book, Freedom, is about this extraordinary trip that we took. I, I went with a couple of vets and a, and a war photographer who was with a dear friend of mine as he died in Libya. And I got to know this guy, Guillermo. And we walked along the railroad lines, this sort of weird swath of no man's land uh, from Washington, D.C. to Philadelphia to, to Pittsburgh. It was totally illegal. Uh, the cops were looking for us. So at one point in, uh, in a helicopter, ran into a criminal motorcycle gang that we were a little worried about. And um, someone shot at us in Pennsylvania like it was a weird trip. And we were sleeping under bridges and abandoned buildings and drinking out of creeks and cooking over fires in the woods and right through the ghettos, right through the suburbs, right through everything. Um, 400 miles. And uh, an extraordinary trip. And, and, and that in that we use mobility to stay free. Like basically it was our speed. We were moving 10 or 20 miles a day that sort of kept us beyond the reach of curious locals, law enforcement, whoever it might be. But eventually if you can't outrun them, you're going to have to outfight them. I mean, not for us, but uh, in human history. And that's where I talk about this amazing phenomenon that with humans, a smaller fighter or a smaller group can actually win, can beat, a larger fighter, a larger group. It's not true in the rest of the animal kingdom. Uh, the large elk, the large grizzly bear, the large chimpanzee invariably dominates a physical fight. But in humans, the smaller individual can win and, and the smaller group can win. And, and that's where a huge amount of human freedom comes in. Um, the, the, the dynamics scale up from the individual to the group very, very well. The, the larger, more powerful group or individual basically uses up more resources, right? They burn through oxygen. The big muscles burn through oxygen fast. So if the big guy doesn't win the fight in a couple of minutes, uh, it's very possible that he, he, he will not have the stamina to actually, you know, if he can get the small guy in a headlock, he's going to win, right? So the small guy, all he has to do is not lose long enough for the big guy to sort of run out of wind, run out of determination. That's exactly what the Taliban did with the American military and the American military, the most powerful military force ever in history. And the Taliban, who they don't have an air force, they don't have tanks, some of them didn't have shoes, boots. They outfought us. They, 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 they managed to avoid losing for two decades. And now we're, we're leaving on their terms. I hate the Taliban. I loathe them. They're an awful, oppressive, oppressive regime. But the fact that a small group can defeat an empire means that there is a possibility to be self-determining and autonomous and free in human existence. And if we're not, that not true, of course, 
Britain would have won this, the, the Revolutionary War and we wouldn't, you know, we would not be an independent country. It's a small, powerful groups of people. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. Sebastian, let me do a little bit of rapid fire. You mind if I do a little rapid fire with you? Yeah, please. I love that. Uh, what's your favorite movie of all time? Oh, my God. I don't, you know, there are so many amazing movies. I don't know if I can give you one. I, I love The Godfather, but... I love The Godfather and about 20 other amazing films. So it's hard to, uh, it's really hard to answer that one with one film. I'm sorry. 
No, not at all. Not at all. What is your karaoke song? I assume you've done karaoke in many parts of the world. What's your favorite karaoke song? Oh, oh my God. I'm the worst singer. You, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm such a bad singer that I'm not even allowed to sing karaoke. That's how bad I am. <laughs> but I play accordion. If that makes up for anything, I play accordion. I'm a pretty good accordion player. I assume um, if you could have dinner with absolutely anyone, dead or alive, who would you love to have dinner with? Um, I think I would... <laughs> I think I might have dinner with Genghis Khan. He's in my book as an example of a mobile society that sort of like basically dom- completely dominated the world and cr- created the, the, the um, circumstances for the, for the evolution of, the modern, of modern society. And I think I would, you know, he was a former slave, right? I mean, you know, he, I mean, he, had, he was from a, you know, he was an illegitimate child and he was basically a servant in a family for a while. And then he became Genghis Khan. And I think I would say to him, man, how did you do it? Like, all of Europe was scared of you. And you're just some guys on horseback with bows and arrows. Like, how did you do it? Huh. Most beautiful place you've ever been to in the world? Afghanistan is stunning. And it's stunning in the same way that America is stunning. The variety of environments is just breathtaking. And I would have to go with, to, with one of those two countries. The American West, the Rocky Mountains. Sierra Nevadas, the desert. I mean, I don't even, I don't even, how do you pick, how do you choose between so many different kinds of beauty? I mean, it's impossible, but I think I would go with one of those two countries. And are you a five-star hotel guy? Are you an Airbnb guy? Who are you when you travel? Um, If I'm working with somebody, for somebody, like if I'm on a book tour, I just sleep wherever they tell me to sleep. And if I'm Driving around the country, it's either a cheap motel or it's the back of my car. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of just pulling over and sleeping in the back of a station wagon. And, but, I, you know, I should just remind everybody that I walked 400 miles sleeping under, bri- under bridges and in abandoned buildings. And, you know, we didn't even have a tent. So at the end of the day, you're asking maybe where I felt most free? Definitely under the bridge, for sure. If I were to have asked your mom and dad when you were 14, what's young Sebastian going to become when he grows up? What would they have told me? I spent a lot of time in the woods. I, you know, I didn't have a girlfriend until I was, like, unbelievably old. Like, I was a real loner. I spent a lot of time in the woods. And uh, I was sleeping out, out. I mean, I would crawl out my window and, and run up into the woods near our house and sleep out there every season, you know, all the time curled up in a blanket in front of a fire. I think they thought I was kind of a little savage. Like, I think I was like, and I think they would have said, frankly, we're a little worried about what Sebastian's going to be when he's older. Um, I don't think they had any idea, and I didn't have any idea either. Uh, The thing that I also did, though, is I read a lot. I read a lot of books. Um, And between sleeping outside in front of a fire and reading constantly... I think you could put those two things together and more or less come up with the career that I wound up in. So maybe they would have said, maybe they would have said journalists, but I think mostly they would have been worried. Um, Sebastian, how much do you think, um, when you think about your journey, obviously the last year we've had more conversation in the country and in the world about race, maybe than we've had, I would say, in 50 years. Um, And you've been lucky enough to live in different parts of the world and to think about this conversation with different people different dynamics, what have you. How do you see the racial situation here in the U.S.? And where do you think we can go? And 
part of me is asking if maybe there's something you've learned either here in the U.S. or maybe you've learned in your travels elsewhere. Yeah, oh, it's a great question. It's super complicated. And, you know, I would say I would remind people that there's there's three important words here. There's freedom. Uh, which freedom, first and foremost, means you're not controlled by an enemy, um, that the society itself is self-determining. And then once you have your self-determining society, it must be a just society, right? Or you're, tra- you know, or you're just being, you're losing your freedom from within, uh, which happens, right? So, so there's freedom, there's justice, um, a free society has to be a just society. There can't be two different uh, systems of accountability for uh, rich people and poor people, for, for black and white or whatever. The, the, justice has to be blind, as they say. And then there's our rights. And our rights are given to us individually by the group. And so I think for African-Americans, um, from what I understand, from what they have said and said eloquently for many decades is that there, there are two system, justice systems in this country, at least two. I would, I would say there's more than two. I'd say there's justice for very wealthy people um, and justice for poor people. And I'd say there's justice for people of color and, and white people. And those four recombine in different complicated ways. Um, but that is, I think they're right, and it's an abomination. Um, and the result is that African-American men, particularly young men particularly, are at greater risk than some other groups of, being, um, of losing their lives in, in confrontations with law enforcement, or not even confrontations, just interactions with law enforcement. And I say in my book, if you can be killed without consequences for the killers, you're not free. And I think that absolutely can apply to Af- African-Americans in this country. So, it, so, so, Sebastian, what, what do you think your white brothers and sisters, um, and they're not just your white brothers and sisters, they're all of our brothers and sisters, but yeah. what do you think your white brothers and sisters think when they hear you say that? What do you, what do you think they think? And I, I realize I'm asking a question and there's no one answer, so I'm very aware of that. And I realize that no one person, yourself included, could even know the answer. But, but what do you think they think when you've, you've had these conversations with friends, white brothers and sisters of yours? What, what do you think they think when, uh, when they hear you say something like that? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 mean, I think most of the people that I'm, I know, absolutely, most of the people, all the people that I'm friends with, I think would agree with me, you know? I mean, I think the big question, and I, you know, I mean, I vote Democratic. I, you know, definitely most of my friends are, are liberals. I have some very good conservative friends, and I think they would agree with me too. Uh, but even conservatives that might not agree with me, I mean, I think somewhere deep in all of our hearts, we realize like there's an open wound in this country that's got to be healed, you know, and, uh, and it's a wound that goes back to the, to the beyond the founding of this country. Um, and, you know, but one thing, you know, what I, what I think I should say, just to be like completely fair and clear with everybody, there's all, you know, class. I mean, race is the, this thing that people just do not want to talk about that's hugely determinant of people's lives and their outcomes and in very unfair ways, you know. But class is also, and, and, and the, the political left, which I'm part of, like is very reluctant to talk about class. And, you know, you can be a, a very, very poor white 
and really, really struggle to, um, to make a good life economically for yourself. I mean, there's a huge amount of oppression of poor people, and poor people are both black and, and white, you know, and, and that class conversation is super important. So when people say white privilege, I completely know what they mean. Like, yeah, a cop stops me, and I'm not going to, I don't really worry that the, 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 what's going to, that, the awful videos I've seen happening to African-American men, that's probably not going to happen to me. I know that. It's definitely a form of white privilege. Uh, but then I think of people that I've talked to, you know, coal, mine, coal miners, loggers, fishermen, people who like make very little money doing incredibly dangerous things. Um, I don't see a lot of privilege in those societies, you know, in, in a poor rural white societies. That's not a privileged place, you know. So I feel like in our national conversation, we actually have to accommodate class as well into how we talk about if it's a just society or not. We have to do all of it. Um, because if not, if we don't, people in that segment of society will say, what, say, you know what, we're not doing so great either. Maybe we get by traffic stops a little better than other people, but our lives are miserable. And, and if you don't talk about that too, I'm not on board with whatever you have, whatever justice, you know, just vision of justice you have. We really have to talk about all of it. And Americans hate talking about class. When you think about whether or not substantial racial and or class progress over the next, call it decade, is truly possible, substantial, not incremental, are you optimistic as someone who's, who's an anthropologist at heart, who studied societies, who thinks about change and continuity? Are you, are you optimistic that substantial change can happen? Well, here's, here, I mean, here's the problem. We, you know, we are a species, we're social primates, and there's a lot of wiring in us, uh, of people of every race. There's a lot of wiring in us that gives us an in-group bias. Like the people that we gr grow up around, we see slightly differently than people we don't grow up around that look different than us. I mean, that's just part of being human, right? The amazing thing about America is that we're attempting to do something that really hasn't been done before, which is like, all right, Bring it on. Like every kind of person in the world, every religion, every language, bring it on to this huge country. And we're going to make, we're going to, we're going to institute a, a system where everyone has the same rights, at least in theory, hopefully in practice. And we're going to make it work, right? That is a huge, huge, that's a tall order. I, I think for the most part, we've actually pulled it off. Um, but there's a long way to go. And so I'm very optimistic that actually things will improve. I mean, even just you know, I don't, I have a flip phone, right? I don't have a modern smartphone. So I don't shoot video on my phone. I don't take pictures. That's just my thing. But most of the world does have a smartphone. And you can just see the change in police accountability that has come from public scrutiny. And um, there's a very, there's a very powerful theory about religion, that when the first agricultural society started, People started living in communities that were so big that they included people that you didn't know personally. And that was when the sort of monolithic gods were basically created because you wanted to be able to tell people, look, God is always watching. So if you steal something from that guy or you sleep with that guy's wife or you did it or whatever, like even if no one, no one sees it, God sees it. And it was a way of keeping people accountable even when they could be anonymous in the city. And I feel like in a basically secular society, suddenly that's what the iPhone has done. And uh, it has made police way more accountable than they used to be. Um, there's got to be cultural changes that, that follow on from that. And I think, you know, there's good policing, there's bad policing, and there's no policing. 
you know, obviously what we want is good policing. Uh, I've been in countries with no policing and, you know, the violence rate is, is astronomical. It's not, I don't think it's a realistic solution. That's interesting. You're actually making me wonder whether there is a different kind of police training academy. You know, Harvard for years has done that program for new members of Congress. And now they do an interesting program for school leaders, principals and superintendents, um, trying to, you know, bring some best ideas together and allow people to reimagine. And you're making me wonder whether something like that, even if it lasted over a two-year period of time for the top, you know, 250, you know, police leaders, whether that actually would be really valuable alongside a whole suite of other things and actually changing norms um, and changing approaches. Yeah, and I think adding to the to the uh, tools that the police have available. I, I mean, you know, a lot of police encounters that go bad off, you know, involve people that uh, have uh, psychological issues that are impaired by drugs or alcohol. I mean, there are there are these circumstances that keep coming up in situations that go wrong, and obviously the police have a role in that. But you know, you 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 have to address those issues too, and those people with those issues actually might be better better dealt with with someone who's not a cop. I mean, someone who has authority and is trained uh, in dealing with people like that, but is not actually a policeman. And, you know, that, I mean, that's a, that's an excellent idea, right? Like that's, why not? I mean, that's how it would be dealt with in, in a, you know, in the village square, like someone's acting badly, the community of people around him or her would, would take charge of the situation, right? You know, we live in a modern, a modern society, mass society where we've outsourced all of those roles to professionals. This might be a case where we have to sort of bring it back to a more interpersonal solution that is actually where most of humanity, you know, usually prefers to function. Hey, Sebastian, final question, and then I'm going to leave yep. your left ear alone. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, the, uh, the perfect storm. Uh, um, what a wonderful thing to have had happen in someone's life to be 35, have a movie made with Clooney and Mark Wahlberg and have it do well and all that other kind of goodness. Give me the backstory, the hidden story here. How did, how does a movie get made? How does a 35 year old guy who a couple years earlier was doing freelance journalism all of a sudden wake up at 35 and, and walk in the red carpet with uh, Clooney and uh, Mark Wahlberg and have kind of a big budget movie made? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I wrote the book, obviously, and then I had nothing to do with it after that. Uh, Warner Brothers bought it. I think they forgot they had it. And then the book came out as a bestseller. And I, I have this image of like a Hollywood exec around a pool or something. And they, don't, they don't really function like that. But that, at 35, that was my image of Hollywood executives, sort of like reading the New York Times thinking, oh, my God, we own this property. Like, we got to make a movie. That's my picture of it. I'm sure it didn't happen that way. And then after that, they just did their thing. I mean, I had nothing to do with the actual process of getting it made. I don't know what their calculations were. They obviously thought they could make more money than they would spend on it. And they went ahead and did it. Um, but I wrote that book. You know, I was a, I was a high climber for tree companies um, before, I was, before I was an author. Um, and, uh, you know, I got hurt pretty badly. I hit myself with a chainsaw, you know, 50 feet up in a tree. And um, that got me thinking about dangerous jobs. And that got me thinking about commercial fishing because I lived in a fishing town and a boat was lost while I was limping around with this injury. A boat was lost with six men. I thought, all right, I'm going to write, I'm going to write about that. Let's see if I can sell it as a book. Yeah. Well, uh, bravo to you. Uh, uh, I was, uh, I was celebrating for you, even though I didn't know you from afar. And, uh, and, and again, really appreciate uh, the work you've done over the years. I think about 
a number of people, including yourself and uh, Gladwell and Philip Gorovich and, and others who I think are contributing to how we um, maybe understand our humanity uh, a little better, a little differently. So, so thank you. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Um, Sebastian, be safe, be well. And uh, when the world gets healthy, if, uh, if your bar's still open, I'm going uh, to come hit you up for, uh, for a drink. You know, it, it, uh, we had to close it, but come, 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 come shake my hand and we can sit down for a drink elsewhere and, and, and have a good conversation. I look forward to it. I, I certainly I, do. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, At these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.